Okay, so tonight we're going to try to finish up Revelation chapter 6. That's the plan. And uh, before we continue on there, let's just again continue to continually remind ourselves where we're at. We are right here in chapter, chapter 6, the book with the seven seals that was in the right hand of the Father while he sat on his throne was taken, and who took the book out of the Father's right hand? Jesus did. In that context where it tells us about Jesus taking the book, we learn that he's called what in that context? He's called a lamb and a lion. That's right. The lion and the lamb. That's right. Lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the only one qualified. He's the only one able not just to take the book, out of the right hand of God, but he's able to break the seals. He breaks each one of the seals. Remember, these seals, what they basically represent, in my understanding, is they represent a summary, an overall summary of the book of Revelation. They are, in a nutshell, the story of Revelation, what Revelation is all about. And I hope you've been able to see that so far as even we have broken or been able to see Jesus break the first three seals. Each one of these seals tells a different aspect of the story. They are uh, a helicopter view of the story of Revelation, these, this book with the seven seals. And so with the first seal, when the first seal was broken, a rider comes out on a white horse. And this rider is conquering. He's been set out to conquer, and he has authority. And we said that that, at least in my judgment, represents the conquering of the gospel. The story of Revelation begins with the preaching of the gospel. It begins with the kingdom of God being, being an, uh, established and growing, and people's hearts being converted to the Lord through the Lord working through his people. Uh, Luke really does a good job of kind of showing us this in his two works. The book of Luke is about the work of Jesus on the earth, his ministry. But the book of Acts, which needs to be read along with the book of Luke, is really Luke chapter or Luke part two. Because it talks about the work of Jesus continuing through his people. Acts picks up exactly where Luke left off. The book of Luke left off. It's written by the same person. And he's really telling one big story. He's telling the story about the work of Jesus on the earth. And then he tells the story of Jesus' work continuing through his people, even though he's in heaven. And so the work of Jesus continues in the story of Revelation. The gospel is going out. It's being preached. People are being converted. Satan is suffering some terrible blows. Jesus conquering people's hearts through the teaching of his word. But as a result of that, some bad stuff happens. Isn't that how it goes? You think, you think we're going to be able just to preach the gospel? and convert people, baptize people, help bring people into the kingdom of God, and the devil just sits back and does nothing? You think that's how it goes? That's, that's not how it goes. Revelation, I believe, makes that clear because after the white horse comes out and the rider is conquering, there's another rider that comes out and he's on a red horse and he's taking peace from the earth. He, he is slaying men. He is, he is murdering men with a great sword. And we say that that symbolically or apocalyptically represents probably the conflict that follows the preaching of the gospel. 
As the gospel goes out, as men's hearts are being converted to Jesus Christ, people or Christians are being persecuted. They're suffering. Some are even dying. And we, we saw samples of that in our studies about the seven churches of Asia. I mean, the whole reason why Revelation was even written was to comfort and give hope to these Christians who were living in the hot zone of the Roman persecution. It was to give them encouragement knowing that they needed to hang in there because God saw what they were going through. He saw they were being persecuted and everything was going to be okay. So these Christians were being persecuted here. And I think that's what this second seal is telling in the story. But then we get to the third seal. And the third seal shows us another aspect of the persecution. And that is when the third rider comes out and he's on a black horse. He has a pair of scales or balances in his hand. And we learn that it would get so bad for the early Christians as far as the persecution goes that they would struggle with getting enough food to eat each day. They would struggle with making enough money to buy enough food to feed one person. Now, those who are rich and prosperous, they would continue to get their luxuries like the oil and the wine, but the basic necessities of life, the things like the wheat and the barley, it would take a, a, a denarius, a whole day's wage, just to buy enough of that stuff to feed one person and a Christian family. And so we see not only would there be things like stonings and people being thrown in prison and things like that going on, but there will also be economic oppression. This would be an economic kind of persecution as well. And so that's where we are as far as the first three seals go. But now let's go to the next three seals, the next three, four, five, and six. So we go to seal number four, and that's Revelation 6, 7, and 8. And there the story of Revelation continues to be told. Gospel being preached, conflict results. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, the Lamb is breaking these seals. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it hath the name Death. Hades was following him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. So let's break this one down a little bit. Let's go real slow here. Okay, what does John see here? He sees a rider, just like before, but the rider is riding a what colored horse? So some say ashen, but some of your translations say pale. pale. That's right, same thing, same thing. Now, instead of trying to focus on what the color exactly represents and all that, let's just focus more on what the Bible is trying to tell us here. The Bible doesn't really focus so much on trying to break down the color and all that. The, the, the Bible here focuses on the action. Revelation is, is a book that needs to be studied in a way where we focus on the action. What is going on? So the rider. This rider has a name. This one has a name. The other ones didn't have a name. This one has a name. What's his name? His name is Death. So this one's, this is a scary one here, isn't it? This is Death. This rider's named Death. And he's got something following him. He's Death 
He represents death. But what's following him? So you got death and Hades. Didn't Jesus say that he's been given the keys to what? Revelation 1, he has the keys to death and Hades. Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. I have authority over death and Hades. I've conquered death and Hades. And so we've seen this language already used in Revelation, death and Hades. So we know what death is. The body without the soul, James says, James 2, right? I think James 2.24, something like that. James, James gives a good definition of death. He says, death is when the body doesn't have the what? The soul. It's not just when your heart stops beating. It's not just when you pass out. No, a biblical death is when the soul is gone from that physical container, when it leaves it. The body without the soul is dead. And so we know what death is. None of us have ever experienced death. I don't care how many times your heart stopped beating on the operating table. You didn't die, biblically speaking. Your soul didn't go anywhere. Because the Bible says it is appointed for men to what? Die once, Hebrews 9, 27. And so none of us here know what it's like to die. We will one day, but we don't now. But what about Hades? What is Hades? Does anybody know what Hades is? The Bible also calls this place in the Old Testament, starts with an S, Sheol. Sheol is also synonymous with Hades. So what is Hades? Yes, sir. You go ahead, Lance. Well, well if you have death separating the body and the soul, the body is going to go back to the earth, but the soul is going to go somewhere else, and that's where it goes, is that is Hades. Excellent. Excellent breakdown. Lance said that going back to death again, because you've got to connect these two together. When a person dies, and, and Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes, the body goes back to the earth, right? But the soul goes somewhere else. It goes back to God who gave it, but here we even see more specifically, it goes to Hades. It goes to the place where all departed souls or spirits go. Jesus went to Hades for three days. He went to Hades. Remember, he told the rich, or, or I'm sorry, the thief, the thief that died on the cross with him, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus came, when he was raised, he told Mary that he had not returned to heaven yet. So don't cling to him. He had not returned to his father yet. So where did he go for three days? If he didn't return to the father, he went to Hades. Peter even said Jesus went to Hades and preached to the, to, the, to, the, to the spirits there. So Jesus clearly went to Hades. And that's where all departed souls go. That is the place of the dead. Now, we could spend time breaking all that down with Luke 16, talking about how you got paradise and you got the lost side. Well, we know that. But for now, just know Hades is where departed souls go. So you got death. You got Hades. And notice this rider who's named Death, and he has Hades following him. He has authority. He has authority to do what, according to the text? He has authority to do what? To kill how much? 25%, right? A fourth. 
Not everything, not even half. He's got a authority to kill a fourth of the earth. Not everybody on the earth is affected by what he's doing. He's got limited authority here. So what does this represent? I believe that this part of the story represents God's people being murdered. I think God's people are being murdered here. I think this is showing us the progression here. Gospel goes out. It's conquering people's hearts. There is persecution that results. Part of that is economic persecution, but it's even more severe than economics. It is people being, Christians being murdered. Being murdered by the Roman Empire. And so think Antipas again. Remember Antipas? What was that, Revelation 2? Uh, Revelation 2, verse 13. Revelation 2, 13. I know where you dwell. Jesus talking to the church at Pergamon. Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My witness, my faithful one. Who was killed among you. He was killed. Where Satan dwells. And so I think you have Christians being murdered. And history confirms that that's exactly what happened to Christians during the time of Domitian. And it was done by the empire, but you also had famine that, that was going on, and history also confirms that. There was a lot of famines going on in the world in the time of the first century. You have pestilence, and then the wild beast. It reminds me of what Paul said in one of his letters, maybe 2 Timothy uh, 4. I may be wrong about that, but I think in one of Paul's letters, he says that he fought with the wild beast. Y'all remember that when Paul said that? Paul's talking literal there. He literally fought with wild beasts. Uh, it was not uncommon for the Romans even to have Colosseums and, Colosseums and throw Christians in there. And they would have to battle with the wild beasts and be killed by lions and other ferocious animals. And, and so I think here we have the story emphasizing how Christians are being murdered. And I think you're going to see that even more clearly with the next seal. And maybe other people in the world are also being affected by, by, by this. Certainly so when you think of famines and pestilence. But I think the emphasis that we need to place here is on Christians, on disciples. While other people in the world who were not Christians would certainly be affected by pestilence and famine and things like that, this especially affects God's people. Because they refuse to bow down to the emperor as a god and acknowledge him as Lord, Lord and God. So let me just stop right there and take a pause a little bit. So as you see, the story is bad so far. This, this is not the best story for Christians so far. I mean, the first part was good, but now it looks like Satan has rebounded and he is using a world empire to try to destroy the church and kill God's people and make their lives miserable in an effort to, tr to try to cause them to be discouraged and give up. That's what the devil's doing. He's continuing to do that even to this day. Let me say that. Any comments? If I, yes, sir, Brother Ryan. Absolutely. Brother Ryan was saying, could this seal be a result of the previous two? I believe so. I believe this is... Um, all just going one after another. I think it's a story like that. 
Kind of like watching a movie where you have, or a play, where one act leads to the other act, which leads to the other act. I think there's a progression here. I think the whole thing is a progression. I think we're going to keep seeing that as we move forward. So good question, good question. Anyone else before we move on? Brother Lance, yes, sir. I just want to say, it kind of reminds me of how Satan came to God over Job. Yep. It, 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 there was escalation there. Lance was saying it reminds him of when Satan came to God about Job. There was escalation there, and it was, even in Job's suffering, it went from one thing to the next, to, and it got more severe each time, it appears. And, uh, and there was constraints that God put on Satan whenever he asked for authority over certain parts of Job's life. No, that, that's a good point. The limitations placed on Satan. And there are, lim there are limitations here, because this is only a fourth. This is only a, a fragment of the empire being affected. It's not everybody. That's important to remember because as we move on in the book, we're going to go beyond this fourth stuff, and it's going to be a totality when God gets involved and brings judgment on the whole thing, uh, except his people, obviously. Uh, so that's a, that's a good thought there. Good thought. Seal number five. Seal number five. This one's a little lengthy here, so let's, let's read it. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath. Now look, think about the progression. Think about the progression. I saw underneath the altar souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Doesn't they go back to the previous seal? You see the progression? And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. What does white represent again? Someone tell me. Purity. These are God's people here. They have white robes on. Okay? That's symbolic there. These are God's holy people. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been. More people are going to die. You see that? It's going to be more, more saints are going to die. They would be completed also. So this judgment was, must continue. You know, sometimes God allows things to happen. God doesn't cause it, but he allows it to take place for a reason. And I, I think we see that principle here. So with the fifth seal, when the fifth seal is broken, we see the souls of Christians. The souls of Christians have been, uh, have, who had been slain under the altar. John, the fifth seal is broken. John sees souls, souls. Remember we talked about departed souls go to Hades? Well, here you go. They're under the altar, and they have, they're there because they have been murdered. They have been slain because of the word of God, because they're Christians, because they stood for Christianity, because they promoted Christianity and converted people to Christianity. Notice you got the souls of God's people here under the altar. What are they saying? They ask a question to God. What's the question? How long? How long what? How long we got to be here or something else? How long are you going to sit back and do nothing, God? How long until you serve justice and avenge us? They want vengeance. They want God to avenge them. Brother Mitch, yes, sir.
Mitch was saying that it's not going to be, as far as his question goes, it's not going to be too much longer because when you get to Revelation 20, now they've been exalted. They're on thrones. And that's exactly what God promised for his people. That's exactly right. That's a good point. Uh, and, and that just shows us a contrast between our wisdom and God's wisdom and our time and God's time. God doesn't operate on our time. But I think it's interesting, and that's a, good, that's a really good comment, Mitch. But to go with it, I think it's interesting to see, to see some of the stuff that's being said here. The consciousness of God's people, even though they're dead. You see the consciousness? They're talking. They are aware of how they got there. They're aware of their surroundings. They're even aware, and I'm not trying to make a big deal of this, but it's interesting, that God hadn't done anything yet. You see that? They say, when are you going to do something about what's going on on the earth? So they know something hadn't been done yet. They have consciousness. They have some awareness. They want to know, God, when are you going to serve justice here? And how does the Lord respond to them in the text? How does he respond? He says what? You need to rest. And another way we could say that is God saying you need to wait. You just wait. You wait and you rest a little longer. You're fine right now. You got nothing to worry about. Let me do my thing. Don't worry about my end of the stick. You wait a little while longer. I like how y'all notice the rest part. Rest. God's people are resting. We see that again, again later in Revelation 14, 13, don't we? Where the Bible says, blessed are those who die in the Lord because they get to what? Rest. From their labor. So when Christians die in the Lord, they get to rest. That's a good thing. We rest. But notice also the idea of a little while longer. That's time. That's time. That's when I need eternity yet. There's time involved here. You need to wait a little bit longer. We know that language, don't we? When I say wait a little bit longer, if we tell our kids, you know, face birthdays today, she wants some cake, you wait a little bit longer. We're going to go to Bible class first before you get some cake. You wait a little. We know that. That's time, isn't it? Our kids understand time. This is time involved here. It's going to happen soon. And, and this, is, this is the message of Revelation. Shortly come to pass, quickly, little while longer. There it all is. It's, it's consistent. And so what does the vision mean? Well, the vision, let me go back, I'm sorry, represents the blood of the martyrs crying for justice. They want justice. They want, just, they want God to avenge them against their enemies. Let me ask you a question. Is it wrong for disciples to ask for that? Is it wrong for disciples to ask God, when are you going to avenge us against our enemies? Is that wrong? Yeah, obviously not. It's not. Brother Don, yeah, go ahead, sir. It is not wrong to ask for what God said he was going to do. Yes. He's already said, vengeance is mine, and I'm going to take care of it. And so us asking, they're, they're just asking, well, you said you were going to do it. When are you going to do it? Right. No, excellent point. Don saying there's nothing wrong with asking for God for something he says he's already going to do. And he does say vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. The right robe is, is definitely a big part of that. So let me let me give you three things to think about here. Oh, Brother Greg, go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. That, that's a very mature, spiritually mature answer. I like that. Uh, that makes you think outside the box a little bit. You know, because God can see things we can't see. And it, what if God had avenged the Christians right away in the case of Saul? We wouldn't have got half the New Testament, at least not through him. Uh, so God can see things we can't see. Maybe God can see some good that's going to be done with this continual persecution. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is a really good point. And I've never thought about that before. But it wouldn't be, it's certainly not out of what we see God do throughout the Bible. In his time, things working out for the best, even though we want things to be done quick. Absolutely. Yes, sir, Don, then we need to, then we need to get moving here. Go right ahead, sir. When, when, when Christ came to this earth, he brought the gospel with him. When he went back, there are still those things yet to be done. Like you just mentioned Luke saying there at the beginning of Acts. So when you look at the things that were done here, and now this is the second part, I, I have often thought about this scroll as being the, the second part. The gospel has been delivered. Now what's the rest of the story? It's in the scroll. Right. No, that's a good point. Good stuff, everybody. I appreciate all your comments. Y'all are some good, good Bible students. Let me give you three things to think about here. I'm just going to throw this out, and I won't have a lot of time to have, take comments on it. But just think about this for your consideration, okay? I hope you can see this as a biblical thing I'm going to throw out to you. Go ahead and go in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. While you turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, we as a church are reading the wisdom literature right now, right? We're reading the Psalms. That's part of it. Have you noticed so far, and, you haven't, and if you haven't yet, I hope you will moving forward, there are what are called imprecatory psalms, imprecatory psalms. Those are psalms where David especially is begging God and asking God to <laughs> avenge him, to bring down his enemies. To, to deny David is doing that in the psalms is just to not be honest with the text, because David clearly does that, and he does it a lot. He does it a whole lot. So watch out for that. That's in the Bible. And what you see David doing is no different than this right here. It's the same thing. Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 6 says, Paul says, for after all, it is only just for God. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who what? Afflict you. Now, who is he talking to here? He's talking to the Thessalonians. Do you remember Acts 17? This church got started through persecution. The Jews persecuting the saints in Thessalonica. And Paul wants them to know God's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And he was going to do that at some point. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. That's judgment. 
to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here Paul is saying God avenges his people. He always avenges his people. And when the Lord comes back again, he will bring the ultimate vengeance on the wicked and those who oppose the gospel and don't obey the gospel. Paul, you don't have to go just to Psalms to see this. You can read about this throughout the New Testament. You can go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can go to 2 Timothy 4 and you can read verse 10. And Paul knew what this was all about when he said in 2 Timothy 4 and verse, and verse number 14, I'm sorry, verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm or much evil. The Lord do what? Repay him according to his deeds. Were his deeds good or bad? They're bad. So obviously Paul is saying, pay him, pay him back badly because he does me harm. This is a biblical concept. It just is. And that's what the saints here are doing. They're praying that God would avenge them against their enemies, and God does not rebuke them for that. God does not say, wait a minute now, y'all look good. Why are you having those kind of hearts? He says, you wait. It's, it's, just wait. I got something I'm working out here. But it's going to be done, and it's going to be done in his time. And so the saints, the departed souls, are told to wait. So, so far in the story, the gospel conquers the hearts of men. Conflict follows the gospel. God's people are oppressed economically here. God's people are, get, are oppressed to the point of being killed, and then those who are killed are crying out for justice. They're crying out for justice. And God says there's going to be some more killed. There's going to be some more saints killed here. But justice is going to come. It's going to come. So let's go to Revelation 6 again. I don't have this one on the slide, but let's uh, look at verses 12 through 17. Revelation 6, 12. So in the sixth seal, John says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and some became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. I can just picture folks right now just, just literalizing all that. No matter how many times I say it, we can't help it, can we? And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Okay, let me try to wrap this up in just a few minutes. What does John see once the sixth seal is broken? Well, simply put, he sees a lot of bad stuff happening. He sees a lot of bad stuff happening on the earth as God now avenges his people. Verse number 12, there's an earthquake. Verse number 12 again, we see the sun is darkened. The moon is not shedding light, verse 12. Verse 13, you have the stars mentioned there. The stars fall to the earth. Verse 14 again, every mountain. And every island is moved out of their places. The sky is split apart, verse 14. So you got sun, moon, earthquake, 
stars fall from the earth, verse 13, sky split apart, verse 14, mountains, islands moved from their places. What did the people do? According to verse 15, the kings, the great men, the commanders, the rich and the strong. What do they do when all this happens? Verse 15. They try to hide. They try to hide. Who are they trying to hide from? According to verse 16, they say we want to hide from the presence of two people. Who are they? Him who sits on the throne. That's a reference to God and from the wrath of who else? Jesus. So they know where this is coming from. This is coming from the father and his son, Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, what do they call this day? They call this a great day of what? Wrath. This is a day of wrath. Who's going to be able to stand this day? We can't defeat the father and the lamb. Now, obviously, this is apocalyptic judgment language. And there are so many different places in the Bible that use this same kind of language. Look at Isaiah 13. I'm going to go through this really fast. Isaiah 13, verse number 9. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury. This is talking about the Lord going up against Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Doesn't that remind you of something? Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32 verse 7 and talking about Egypt. It says, and when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. It will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give us light. All the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Does that remind you of something? Hosea. Hosea chapter 10. The prophets use this language constantly. Hosea chapter 10. And talking about Israel and how God was going to bring Israel down. In verse number 8. Or verse 7, verse 7, Samaria will be cut off from her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also, the high places of Avon, the sins of Israel will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will glow on their altars. They will say to the mountains, cover us until the hills fall on us. Does that remind you of something? Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8 and verse number 8. Amos 8 and verse 8 and talking about God punishing Israel again. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells on it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth quake in the broad daylight. Does that remind you of something? One more. Matthew 24. Let's get some Matthew 24 in here. And in verse 29, when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. They will know this is coming from Jesus. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
Do you see that apocalyptic judgment language? That's what it is. This is typical apocalyptic judgment language. This is language used by the Bible prophets to describe, to describe God bringing down the enemies of his people. Specifically, in this case, it is symbolizing God bringing down the Roman Empire. This language is not intended to be literal. It is not intended to be overanalyzed, overinterpreted, broken down in every single part, pinpointed to an exact moment in history. That is not what this language is about. This language just simply represents judgment. It's just judgment. It's just God using his means to bring down the enemies of his people. God has always done this. He's always talked this way. He's doing it here in Revelation. You see that? So let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. We'll pick up with this. This is a lot going on here. I want to say a couple of more things about this. It won't take me long on Sunday, but we're going to try to move into chapter 7. Chapter 7 is an interlude. Remember I told you the seventh of whatever in the book always is transitional. It opens up an, another series of seven. But before the seventh seal is broken, like watching a play, you're going to have an interlude. And we're going to talk about the interlude in the story. Okay? So let's stop right there. Thank you for your attention tonight. I really appreciate you. God bless you, and I appreciate your comments. Thank you.